Section 11 of Word Portraits of Famous Writers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele Pooley. Word Portraits of Famous Writers. Edited by Mabel E. Watton. Henry Lord Brougham. 1778 to 1868. From Tickner's Life and Letters. Brougham, who I knew in society, and from seeing him both at his chambers and at my lodgings, is now about thirty-eight, tall, thin, and rather awkward, with a plain and not very expressive countenance, and simple or even slovenly manners. He is evidently nervous, and a slight convulsive movement about the muscles of his lips gives him an unpleasant expression now and then. In short, all that is exterior in him, and all that goes to make up the first impression, is unfavourable. The first thing that removes this impression is the heartiness and goodwill he shows you, whose motive cannot be mistaken, for such kindness comes only from the heart. This is the first thing but a stranger presently begins to remark his conversation. On common topics, nobody is more commonplace. He does not feel them, but if the subject excites him, there is an air of originality in his remarks, which, if it convinces you of nothing else, convinces you that you are talking with an extraordinary man. He does not like to join in a general conversation, but prefers to talk apart with only two or three persons and though with great interest and zeal, in an undertone. If, however, he does launch into it, all the little, trim, gay pleasure-boats must keep well out of the way of his great black collier, as Gibbon said of Fox. He listens carefully and fairly, and with a kindness which would be provoking if it were not genuine, to all his adversary has to say. But when his time comes to answer, it is with that bare, bold, bullion talent which either crushes itself or its opponent. Yet I suspect the impression Brougham generally leaves is that of a good-natured friend. At least, that is the impression I have most frequently found, both in England and on the continent. 1819 From Newspaper Cutting, 1876 Standing in the narrow Gothic railed-off place reserved for the public, the throne at the opposite extremity of the house, you may see on one of the benches to the right almost every forenoon, Saturday and Sunday excepted, during the session, a very old man with a white head and attired in a simple frock and trousers of shepherd's plaid. It is a leonine head, and the white locks are bushy and profuse. So too the eyebrows, penthouses to eyes somewhat weak now, but that can flash fire yet upon occasion. The face is ploughed with wrinkles, as well yet it may be, for the old man will never see fourscore years again. And of these, threescore at the very least have been spent in study and the hardest labour, mental and physical. The nose is a marvel, protuberant, rugose, aggressive, inquiring and defined, unlovely but intellectual. There is a trumpet mouth, a belligerent mouth, projecting and self-asserting, largish ears, and on chin or cheeks no vestige of hair. 
Not a beautiful man, this, on any theory of beauty, Hogarthesque, Ruskinesque, Winkelmanesque, or otherwise. Rather a shaggy, gnarled, battered, weather-beaten, ugly, faithful, Scotch collie type. Not a soft, imploring, yielding face. Rather a tearing, mocking, pugnacious cast of countenance. The mouth is fashioned to the saying of harsh, hard, impertinent things. Not cruel, but downright, but never to whisper compliments or simper out platitudes. A nose, too, that can snuff the battle afar off. And with dilated nostrils, breathe forth a glory that is sometimes terrible. But not a nose for a pouncet box, or a Covent Garden bouquet, or a flacon of frangipani. Would not care much for truffles either, I think or the delicate aroma of sparkling moselle, would prefer onions or strongly infused malt and hops, something honest and unsophisticated. Watch this old man narrowly, young visitor to the lords. Scan his furrowed visage. Mark his odd angular ways and gestures passing uncouth. Now he crouches, very dog-like, in his crimson bench. Clasps one shepherd's played leg in both his hands. Botherham, QC, is talking nonsense, I think. Now the legs are crossed and the hands thrown behind the head. Now he digs his elbows into the little Gothic writing table before him and buries his hands in that puissant white hair of his. The quiddities of Florum, QC, are beyond human patience. Then, with a wrench, a wriggle, a shake, a half-turn and a half-start-up, still very dog-like, but of the Newfoundland, rather, now. He asks a lawyer or witness a question. Question very sharp and to the point, not often complimentary by times, and couched in that which is neither broad Scotch nor Northumbrian burr, but a rebellious mixture of the two. Mark him well. Eye him closely. You have not much time to lose. Alas, the giant is very old, though with frame yet unenfeebled with intellect yet gloriously unclouded. But the sands are running, ever running. Watch him, mark him, eye him, score him on your mind tablets. Then home, and in after years, it may be your lot to tell your children that once, at least, you have seen with your own eyes the famous Lord of Vaux. Once listened to the voice which has shaken thrones and made tyrants tremble, that has been a herald of deliverance to millions pining in slavery and captivity. A voice that has given utterance in man's most eloquent words to the noblest, wisest thoughts lent to this man of men by heaven. A voice that has been trumpet-sounding these sixty years passed in defence of truth and right and justice. In advocacy to the claims of learning and industry and of the liberties of the great English people, from whose ranks he rose, a voice that should be entitled to a hearing in a Valhalla of wise heroes, after Francis of Verulam and Isaac of Grantham. The voice of one who is worthily a lord, but who will be yet better remembered, and to all time, remembered enthusiastically and affectionately, as the champion of all good and wise, beautiful human things. Harry Brougham From Temple Bar 1868. The personal man, the bodily man, the private man, did not vary. From 1830 to 1866, the period between his brightest glow of fame 
and his mental eclipse. He was always the same gaunt, angular, raw-boned figure with the high cheekbones, the great flexible nose, the mobile mouth, the shock head of hair, and uncouthly cut coat with the velvet collar, the high black stock, the bulging shirt front, the dangling bunch of seals at his fob, and the immortal pantaloons of checked tweed. It is said that one of his admirers in the Bradford Cloth Hall gave him a bale of plaid trousering, all wool, in 1825, and that he continued until the day of his death to have his nether garments cut from the inexhaustible store. I have seen Lord Brougham in evening dress and in the customary black continuations, but I never met him by daylight without the inevitable checks. End of section 11